0: Asia Tech Podcast, voice of the Asian tech ecosystem.
1: Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. The next 30 minutes, our guest will be Tom James, the co-founder of NR Capital in Singapore and London. We're going to talk about alternative finance, the blockchain, logistics, traceability, fintech, We're also going to go into the space of deep space, deep space mining, deep space commodities and artificial intelligence. There's a lot to cover in the next 25, 30 minutes. If you're interested in the cutting edge of technology and how that applies to finance, then stick around. My guest is Tom James, the co-founder of NR Capital, coming right up.
0: Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.
1: Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown, joined by Tom James, the co-founder of NR Capital Singapore and London. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's good to have you here. We're going to talk about fintech, fin and tech, and fintech before it was fintech. We're not it's not a wordplay, but you know, you've been in <laughs> yes. the financial services space from commodities to much more recently in the technology side of things for, for a number of years. So maybe we can Talk a little bit about your background as well. Off the top of the, uh, you know, the hour, maybe we can put the uh, on the table. What it is you do in NR Capital? Tell us a little bit about that. What is the problem that you're solving, and also where we are in the fintech space? So NR Capital, explain to us a little bit about what it is for those that don't know.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on the program. Uh, NR Capital basically has evolved uh, to create a solution for a problem, in fact, uh, an ever-increasing issue. Uh, Post-2008 and the banking crisis, regulations changed massively for the banks. And as a result, they've had to put a lot more capital against certain types of business that they do. And this regulatory capital then means, of course, that they've either got to charge more or they have to pull out of certain types of business. Mm. Um, And so for the smaller sort of deals, and smaller, I'm still saying sort of, below $15 million per ticket per transaction. Um, SMEs uh, in not just Asia, but around the world have been increasingly uh, finding it difficult uh, to, to get trade finance. Mm. So this is the finance that you get to literally purchase uh, a, a cargo of grain or sugar or palm oil or Uh, or some raw materials which need to be shipped to across the world to a manufacturer. Um, And so this is a a big, big uh, uh, problem. Um, So we've developed a solution. The solution is Fin plus Tech, as you said, Mm. um, because one is the banks can't make money uh, are you know for these smaller deals and support the SMEs directly, um, although they want to. Um, so uh, we needed to find alternative sources of funding for them. So we set up a fund uh, in our capital trade flow fund, where other investors, high net worth family offices, pension schemes, institutions can actually tap into this new asset class called trade finance. Mm. Um, but then, because these are smaller deals, you need the tech. Um, so we spent a couple of years looking at the technology solutions out there already, um, but also looking at the legal infrastructure as well, because technology without uh, good backup on the legal side um, is not going to work. So we sort of put together our own legal IP. Um, we've brought together some existing technology, which is tried and tested and accepted by commodity traders and banks around the world um, and then made sure that we can actually plug in blockchain and other applications there as well going Mm. forward.
1: Mm. I'll be interested to learn a little bit more about Mm. how that actually happens on the tech side. Going back to what you identified as the problem, Tom, is that before 2008, trade finance that was looked after that was the liquidity of international trade wasn't it that was what That's right. like you said some some would give somebody the liquidity to buy the soybeans or to transport it and so on yes after 2008 what happened was it just that the banks couldn't profitably service that market or because of their capital requirements they didn't have the liquidity to do that maybe you can i don't understand the market well enough hmm. but you understand it as good as anybody else please sort of educate well, no. us.
0: well exactly no initially it was the banks didn't have the money so they were trying to rebuild their balance sheet after the uh, big catastrophic meltdown there in 2008 um, but then regulations were changed um, and as a result of that the amount of regulatory capital they had to put up against certainly commodity deals Mm. uh, increased. And so that meant that what was already a high volume, small margin business, uh, you know, for the smaller deals just didn't make sense. Mm. So typically, you know, if if you're doing deals below $15 million, the bank has to charge you either like a a silly price uh, to make it worth their while. um, Or, you know, uh, people, they just have to say, I'm sorry, but you know, it just
1: doesn't work for us. Right. This is this is part of a, a wider problem, isn't it, is the the fact that these markets which were used to be serviced by traditional banking are now in a space where you've got alternative finance coming in and your side you're building a fund and getting a different group of investors in this asset class. But also if you go into the tech space on a wider scale, you now have companies like the Alibabas and the Grabs who don't have to operate on the same kind of like capital requirements as a bank to be able to fund these kind of mm. projects, right? So I mean, that makes an interesting yes. question mark over just how useful the banks are in the new sort of technological economy. I mean, it's a bit of a mm. it's a bigger question, isn't it? I'm not sure if we should go there that early in the conversation, but I mean, maybe we can just sort of do that at the very sort of superficial level.
0: Well, you know, I mean, I think I think it's fair to say that banks are. You know, searching for their new position uh, in the sort of international trade ecosystem, as it were. Um, You know, they're trialling a lot of blockchain technologies uh, that you know, trying to bring in new efficiencies and other services so that they can reduce their overheads for servicing the the smaller uh, trades, etc. The thing is, is that you know, and I think some will will uh, will succeed. Um, Where we're coming in is that. Another level on top of the solution that we've developed is that we don't do balance sheet lending. We do not lend money. So banks and other lenders will look at people's accounts, financials, balance sheet, and take a, a view of the credit risk on that uh, counterparty. Mm-hmm. Where we've turned the sort of the the credit risk model upside down, and we perhaps only look at of our weighting is really on the counterparty, and 80% is very much on the commodity transaction itself. Mm -hmm. So we go in and our customers, our buyer end buyers say, okay, we need to buy these grains, we need to move them somewhere else, we need to store them, Uh, and then we're going to consume them ourselves or we have other buyers that need it, manufacturers that need it. Um, So we look at the actual transaction and we actually hold on to and buy that commodity in our own name and hold that as our asset. Mm, mm. Um, and so that's much more security for us. So it means we can actually keep the the, the cost uh, of that investment down uh, for the end buyers uh, mm. whilst releasing their working capital. It also means they don't have debt building up on their balance sheet either.
1: Exactly. Well, Tom, I'd like to learn a little bit about the the technology that makes this possible. And I guess that conversation is going to take us into the blockchain as well. But before we do that, I think it's useful for the listeners to learn a little bit about you and your background as well. Obviously, we've mentioned you've been in finance for a number of years. On on a more recent note, you are involved in a number of interesting projects, not just FinTech or finantech as we, we sort of call it, but you are involved in AI, deep space technologies, amongst other things as well. You have a sort of a very wide and varied remit, but it's quite fascinating. What sort of is there a master plan here? Is it just that these things interest to you, or do they all sort of join up together? Maybe we can talk a little bit about that.
0: No, sure. I've been in commodity business for twenty nine years now. Um, I've always had an interest in computers and space, <laughs> but um, there there is a uh, there is a connection here uh, for for NR Capital as well. Uh, one is that you know the whole process of trade finance is just a massive operational big data type of issue. Uh, lots of lots of data going from banks to suppliers, to shipping companies, to customs, to numerous counterparties involved in the supply chain. So the idea is that once we have digitized the supply chain and got rid of the bits of paper, uh, as we do that, we would introduce machine learning and AI to actually improve and run the operations. So hence keeping the cost down uh, for uh, for all the uh, the users of the system. Um, so that's where the you know the AI side of thing kicks in. and then deep space technologies and deep space c- sort of commodities and space mining and stuff like that, I mean that's looking forward you know, over the next five to ten years. but um, my interest in that and and just a, a book recently called Deep Space Commodities, mm. um, and that really was inspired by the fact that, in the day-to-day life of commodity trading now and even the sourcing of commodities, the extraction and the tracking of commodities on ships around the world all involves high-tech satellites. Um, and so there's a huge amount of satellites now which, you know, you have to use if you're in the commodity business. So there's a lot of practical stuff that's going on in deep space, um, you know, with all of the private uh, space pioneering that's going on. It now costs just, oof, you know, you know, literally a couple of million dollars now, not hundreds of millions of dollars to build your nano satellite yes, And your a exactly. private private network um, and uh, can cost a uh, – you know, a very small amount to get that also popped up into space along with a, a few other peoples.
1: Mm. It's a very interesting sort of, uh, you know, closing the loop, isn't it? Where you have, I mean, you mentioned it there. I wondered if you were going to mention nano satellites and we, we digress a little bit, but it's worth talking about, isn't it? That the whole idea is that obviously technology is democratizing access to the data isn't it whereas once before you had to be part of a a global system or you had even to launch a satellite you had to go through one of the the national space programs but even that's changing now that you know somebody can launch a satellite for very little money now they have access to tracking data on a global scale and that that logistical data can be stored on the blockchain and shared with a large number of providers. And you've got a very interesting world, haven't you? I mean,
0: absolutely, absolutely. What does it look there, was, like, uh, you know? there, there was a few visitors recently to Singapore where I'm based uh, p- promoting the Copernicus uh, program mm. out of Europe, you know, and that's all all the data, all the information is freely available for developers to, to plug in. Um, so you've got multitude of GPS-type systems all over the world. where the satellites which are giving free information. So, you know, in the world of commodities where you have to find the stuff, dig it up out of the ground, uh, move it, monitor it, <laughs> mm. uh, you know, and then trade it as well, um, you know, satellites now are really part of the, the everyday life of uh, of the business. Mm-hmm. Can, can- it's, um,
1: Yes. Well, I wanted to ask about that because it sort of brings us back a little bit into trade finance as well. And what you do with NR Capital is that uh, where one of the things I'm always interested in, I mean, I'm a technologist myself, but I'm I'm more sort of interested in how technology applies to day to day life. And a blockchain is obviously a technology which has been overhyped by its own admission. It's seriously overhyped. But there are like with all the Internet back in the early days, there was a lot of good behind it. You know, that maybe 90% of it was speculation or frothy, but behind it, there was this sort of core infrastructure being built out and a philosophy behind it. And it seems that, you know, when we talk about blockchain now, where we're starting to see really interesting applications is in the space of logistics, whether it is in international trade or the traceability of food products, for example. Mm, Uh, You know, why is it, do you think that that area particularly where we're talking about logistics across borders, um, you know, with multiple parties sharing of information is lending itself you know, well to blockchain at this early stage. what what's sort of going on for those sort of observing the space and trying to look for where this is going to really impact our day to day lives right here right now?
0: Well, I mean, I think uh, you know there has been, as you said, uh, a lot of uh, people searching for how to use blockchain for the sake of blockchain. Uh, but I think we've we're now starting to see some serious applications uh, emerging. Uh, some of those are very practical for the, you know, commodity uh, business, um, because of DLT or distributed ledger technology, which the backbone of blockchain, um, is encrypted, naturally has uh, a certain Higher level of security due to the DLT. Mm. It, it's really perfect for ensuring that uh, records of ownership, um, financial records, and data—just as some people are using it for medical record data—is uh, that much more safe and sort of hacker-proof. Um, so that's certainly one area which we're looking at. Mm. Uh, another area for the tracking—you know—we're looking at, you know, even medical products or so pharmaceutical products. How you know they are can be tracked and logged uh, using blockchain. Mm. Again, the hacker-proof nature of uh, DLT uh, can lend itself to to ensuring that um, goods can be identified quickly as being fake or original, or certainly at least querying that okay, the, these might be fake, so let let uh, have a look at that. We've been talking about the the financing. Or pharmaceutical uh, products uh, into Africa, um, and unfortunately, in Africa, there's been a, hu- a huge increase in the amount of fake uh, pharmaceuticals. It's a serious problem, yeah, uh, uh, which is causing you know damaging health or, or worse. Yeah.
1: yeah, absolutely. Let's sort of bring this together with the, the, the finance aspect and talk about what it is that you do. In, in our capital, you've obviously alluded to already that you, you <clears throat> created a fund, you have access to individuals, high net worth individuals, family offices and so on, people who want access to this asset class. How does it actually operate in terms of finance? And tell us a little bit about the technology side and why that's important for operating at the kind of levels of deals that you're talking about.
0: Well, the other big headache that people have uh, and cost and increasing cost is keeping up with what's called KYC, AML, and embargoes. KYC is uh, know your counterparty or know your customer. Data is like who owns the company, who's on the board. You know, you know, is there any anything negative about those individuals, about the company? Um, not just of the accounting records anymore. And then also anti-money laundering as well procedures and requirements. And then every single transaction you have to check is that commodity okay to come from that country to another country. Yeah. And obviously with all these trade wars going on as well, that's a full-time job. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> so so uh, that's again where we've digitised the KYC AML process, where you know we're able to use technology to to draw down corporate data from government databases, mm. um, and then even get geotagged selfies from people's uh, phones to match up against their passport records and just make sure that we, we are dealing with the people that we should be dealing with mm. uh, in, uh, in these companies. Now, for the banks and other financial institutions, they already have existing infrastructure there and uh, so that that can that process can take several months. Uh, a lot of the time, if you, if any of the uh, listeners have tried to open a bank account recently, then they know what it's like.
1: <laughs> it gets harder so, as well, doesn't yeah. it? Even with the technology, it's not getting any yeah. easier, is
0: it? So, again, that, that's another key bit is that of our digitization is trying to do all of that electronically and as efficiently as possible uh, and just make it convenient for people to supply that data as quickly as possible so mm. that we can then get on and uh, help them with the, the business and also with uh, moving commodities around the world. You know, it's the lifeblood of, co- of the of the uh, economy, real uh, commodity movements.
1: Do, do you foresee building that outside the existing financial institutions is it a case of you have to do this in a decentralized way or will you have to bring in regulators and retail banks or merchant banks to you know uh, plug into their systems and do you need any of their kind of help to make this happen or can this happen purely you know from a commercial standpoint in the free market
0: well, it's a very, very good question. I mean, right now, our business model actually is cooperating with banks. You know? So you know, the banks have the customer relationships for whatever reasons. Uh, they're unable to fully support their SME customer. Uh, and we work with those banks to then help um, hmm. develop those businesses uh, through our funding and investment um, and at a later stage, the banks will, and as their business gets bigger, will obviously be able to to support them directly. Um, but on the payment, you know, so we do work with the banks and the current banking system issuing various um, trade finance documents like letters of credit and standby letters of credit, which are traditional trade finance instruments. But then also um, going forward, though, at the moment, the the, the big issue now is payment systems. Mm uh we keep hearing a lot of talk about uh, swift which uh, and certain countries getting s- switched off yeah, <laughs> yeah. or potentially switched off so you know there's there's a lot of talk uh, in uh, in asia about well you know should we be looking at alternatives to swift mm. um we you know i think we uh, this is something which uh, banks and, and countries are looking at doing and whether people want to trade with US dollars or euros or some other currency. So there's an awful lot of discussion in that space at the moment around the, the payment systems and blockchain yeah. applications.
1: Yeah, I wonder, there's parallels, isn't there, with the the geo-positioning satellites, isn't there, that that with the payment systems like SWIFT, that you have effectively a centrally owned GPS system, whether it's the US or even like with the EU one, for example. Everybody wants their mm. own one, but now you have this, this ability to create your own, in, in mm-hmm. the private yes. market. And it, it, we're seeing something very has, interesting happening in the, the payment space, aren't we? And I've mentioned Alibaba as an example. You're seeing these non-financial companies effectively now creating these ecosystems, which I suppose, I mean, if you go back to the 19th century, they're almost like the standard oils of their space, aren't they, where they're sort of front to back building everything. And now you have, here in Singapore, you have a taxi company effectively who has their own payment system. It's it's a very interesting model, isn't it, what's happening? And I I wonder, what does that look like in the future? Will all these companies have their own ecosystems, payment systems, their own tokens, their own, you know, will they build it on blockchain from front to back? What what do you think it's gonna look like sort of five (sighs) to 10 years from now?
0: It's mm. It's hard to say, but certainly what we're seeing so far, of course, I think is uh, everyone developing their own standards. <laughs> mm. So, you've got groups of industry groups or sector groups or bank groups, uh, uh, you know, experimenting, whether it's with uh, Ethereum-based systems uh, or their own private blockchain systems um, for payments and even for Commodity trade, finance, transaction data—it um, all seems to be quite experimental at this stage. Mm. Um, and uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But I'm sure um, people will start to evolve some standards in the coming years. But it seems to be still a bit, uh, a bit on the experimental side.
1: Exactly. Yeah, mm. it's very early days, isn't it? It's the wild mm. west, really. Where, where do you? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about that, Tom. Is that your You know, I guess your training is as a commodity trader, Um, energy, you know, commodities, you not being a trader myself, but I imagine that, you know, your success in that space was due to, in some ways, taking the emotion out of it and being able to look at things scientifically. You know, I'm, I'm first of all curious about what kind of mindset is successful in that space and also now applying that to new technologies today, you know, understanding what is the technology that is going to be successful in the future and what is really hype at this stage. So maybe mm. we can talk a little bit about the mindset of a successful commodity trader. What does that require first?
0: Well, like you said, it, I think it requires a lot of discipline and uh, also a lot of hard truths so of uh, quickly you probably make more money when you quickly sort of recognise that you've got something wrong, because <laughs> mm. if you have got it right, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> hard um, to repeat, so, right? Exactly. So, so it's really down to having um, sort of a methodology and a, and and a, an approach. Uh, so having certain tools, I mean, in trading you would have certain mathematical tools which help you analyse the market and kind of keeps you keeps your perspective mm. uh, on on things. And you just have to trust them and utilise them to to keep you on the straight and narrow and keep you disciplined on your risk reward and your investment. And it's a bit like the same with selecting technology uh, right now with NR Capital. We've had to build um, a, a jigsaw puzzle, I would say, of Uh, different technologies which have been out there on their own for some of them for several decades Uh, tried and tested legally tested um, and people will accept them Uh, and uh, it's not blockchain but at the same time we've all had to keep our eyes open and make sure that we don't do anything that would cut us off from being blockchain enabled. Mm. And so we're looking to plug into various blockchain type of applications um, as part of the business model mm. uh, and be ready to also to plug into banks when they've set up their their standards for blockchain payment systems, et cetera, uh, in the future. So it's, you know, it's, um, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that because my, I mean, my background is i graduated and you may laugh is i graduated in artificial intelligence in 1995 and uh you know at the time i remember going to the career advisor in my university and telling him that i did an ai degree and he first of all he didn't know what it was and then secondly he recommended that i go and teach english in asia as a result (laughs) of doing that so obviously today (laughs) would be a very different formula i would be you know i'll be at the door of facebook or google but i think that you know it just goes to show that that you know technologies have their day and sometimes they're ahead of their time um, sometimes the technologies that supports the technology is not right um, even though the philosophy might be and that looking at your sort of the areas that you're involved in obviously alternative finance deep space blockchain AI, and a few others to boot, I'm sure as well, is that, you know, how, how do you keep sort of, you know, apply that sort of trader's mindset, have the discipline and say, okay, look, this is, you know, blockchain is seriously hyped at the moment, but this is what's real. Do you, do you sort of like practice any sort of discipline in that sort of sense, like stay away out of the the blockchain events or, you know, do your research in certain areas or so on? I mean, just how do you do that?
0: Mm. I I th- I think it's uh it sort of comes down to time management. Um you know you 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 we've uh, we've got a lot of people that uh, I also send across to events on my behalf. <laughs> 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 uh and uh, to to summarize things so you know so I don't get overloaded but uh, you know you've got to try to sort of find that balance between keeping up with what's going on uh, but also uh, i think just prioritizing things so seeing in terms of the timeline thinking ahead you know Uh, so taking time to taking stock of what needs to get done now and practically speaking you know very and very pretty uh, pretty bluntly sort of saying right okay we need to get a solution for this Mm. what's out there you know what's workable what can we do Uh, but then looking you know one, two, three years planning in the future, saying, okay, what's developing? What should we keep an eye on um, in order to either replace the current technology because it's better um, or, you know, the solution isn't there right now, but it's mm. on its way. Mm. So it's kind of all down to kind of the measure of that business planning mm. uh, with getting a realistic, uh, and it's really down to talking to, to technology people as sort we're of saying, well, this all looks really great, mm. but... You know, where is it really? Are you at pre of concept or do you really have something working? Uh, and, and ask them what the timeline is and double it.
1: Mm, well, there you go. <laughs> That's the reality, isn't
0: it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, good. Well, I, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I, I'm sort of, I would like to learn a little bit about where you think, you know, the, uh, where you think we're heading with all of this is that obviously the space that you're in, um, it's there's a very pioneering space, not just in the deep space space, but also in, you know, the alternative trade finance, blockchain and so on. If you sort of forecast what the that space would look like in five years plus, what do you think, you know, I'm curious to know how that will look, what kind of technologies you think would be involved and in also, you know, what the role of traditional finance, if you like, so retail banks or, you know, investment banks would be in that space, you know, do they have to fear this? Do they do they have a role to play? I mean, how do they get involved in it? What's the best way that they can think about it?
0: Well, um, I think going, I think it's interesting here because you usually have the the people who are in existing finance. They see all the problems and the opportunities, and uh, they're great at developing products. Um, and then you've got the, the the technology guys. Not all of them, but but the vast majority I do meet uh Build all these wonderful things, but don't know how to apply it necessarily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in, uh, or, or they may not actually realise the full potential of what they've developed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really good that you're seeing banks and investment funds and people developing sort of incubators, and you know, and and the sandboxing and uh, by the regulators opening sandboxes to help nurture. The, uh, the technologies mm. and, and put them together with the people that may have a their finger on the pulse as to the needs of the market and, and turning leveraging that, those new technologies into uh, exciting innovative financial products mm. um, so I think the right things are are being done in that respect um, mm. and especially, in especially here the, in Singapore
1: as well it, it's something, yes. maybe we could just talk a little bit about that is that uh, I think I looked at the data recently. There was uh, f- forty-seven blockchain startups have raised just under five hundred million dollars in Singapore um, through ICOs. Though, so I mean, it's not not quite hard cash yet, but it's uh, half a billion. But it's interesting that even though there's a lot of development here in Singapore, the the role of the regulatory bodies, like the MAS, for example, is very proactive, isn't it? I mean, compared to some markets that they seem to have got on board with that message that you're talking about, the sandboxes and supporting, it, not it? So I don't think people appreciate what is actually going on. But from the perspective of Singapore, it seems to be a natural thing to position themselves as a competitive marketplace for that. Not today, but, you know, several years down the line.
0: Well, yes. No, I mean, I have any good things to say about the Monetary Authority of Singapore. They're, they've taken a very pragmatic approach, uh, even with our own business as well. We're creating a new innovative financial solution. Uh, the new innovative financial solution, in fact, is, uh, uh, you know, we're working with regulators to, to look at the regulation of what we're doing in the future mm. uh, with a, a new approach uh, to the uh, trade finance issue. Um, and some of that's financial Innovation and some of it is uh, technology uh, application innovation. Um, So Singapore has been a very, very great hub for for kicking off and uh, getting this off the ground. Mm. Um, So yeah, Mm. definitely well placed here.
1: Good. Well fantastic. It's been great speaking to you, Tom, and thank you for sharing a little of your journey and the space that you're in. What would be the best way for people to reach out to you or your preferred channel that what do you like if somebody was listening to your story on hearing a little bit about n r capital how How do you like people to make contact with you?
0: Well, uh, it's easy to find me on LinkedIn. Yep. <laughs> so uh, so uh, I'm on there and with uh, contact information and uh, information, uh, uh, what uh, what's going on, what we're up to.
1: Okay, good. I'll put all the details in the show mm. notes. That's Tom James, everybody, co-founder of NR Capital in Singapore in London. Tom, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Um, thank you for sharing your insights as well and your foresights for the future. And um, it would be great to get an update at some point in the future as well if we take six months down the line, see how things are evolving in the alternative trade finance space and our capital and also the other projects that you're involved in because I think there's a lot more. There's many more stories to to tell as well. And the fact that you are a serial author as well would be great if you have a book coming up in the future to come and share on your latest publication.
0: That would be great, yeah. Hopefully I'll try and work on something on AI for you. (laughs) Excellent. Well, I'd love that. Okay.
1: Tom Jones, everybody, thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.